Tonight we are going to finish up uh, 2 Thessalonians. We're going to be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, looking at verses 6 through 18, if you want to turn there. But I, I want you to imagine that you're at home late one night and you finally decide to call it a day. And, and, and so you head off to, to, to bed. And, but prior to uh, making, it, you're making your way into the bedroom, you, you, you make one last pass through the house, locking the doors checking them, making sure they're all locked. You close all the blinds, you, you, you turn off all the lights, and after completing your nightly ritual, you enjoy a restful sleep in the safety and comfort of your own home. And, and refreshed the next morning, refreshed and energized you uh, after your good night's sleep, you, you head out the door the next day, and upon entering the garage, you, you discover that while your sleep may have been restful, it, your home was not really secure because you left the garage door open. Has that anything like that ever happened to anybody? Maybe it wasn't the garage door, but maybe you realized you left the front door unlocked or something like that. And what happened was you, you may have rested well that night, but you did not, but you did so with a false sense of security. And so Paul has spent a lot of time, not just in this letter, but in the previous letter and in all of the time that he spent in Thessalonica, he spent a lot of time and effort in teaching the Thessalonians how to live out their faith and, and they could rest knowing that Paul had fully prepared them to do so. Yet before he concludes this letter, Paul does not want the Thessalonians to rest with a false sense of security. So he reminds them of a, of a significant danger to the church. And surprisingly, one of the, one of the greatest dangers to the Thessalonian church was not the blatant attacks from people on the outside. But the greatest danger, one of the greatest dangers anyway, facing the Thessalonian church was the carelessness and the laziness of people on the inside. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So let's begin reading in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers, to keep away from every brother who is idle and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, for we did not eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this, not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to make ourselves a model for you to follow. For even, when, uh, for even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear that some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of him. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, besides the second coming, uh, 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 the, the topic of idleness among the believers actually takes up the most space in this letter. So, most of, the most of the space he talks about the second coming and the man of lawlessness. But the number two topic in this letter is this topic of, of idleness and, and laziness. Uh, 
Paul had, as we know, he had already discussed the issue of idle Christians in the first letter. You'll remember we, we, we talked about that when we were going through 1 Thessalonians. But apparently the problem in the church there had continued even after that. Perhaps Paul's instruction had, had not been strong enough. In, 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 so this passage made it clear that, he, that, that his commands regarding idleness come in the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ because this time, this time he makes it a little stronger because he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ when he starts off. So he's trying to help them understand, hey, this is not just a, an idea that I have. This is not just something that I'm putting out there for you. This is a command from, from the Lord. And so, so, uh, the, the, and then the first letter, when he addresses this, the first letter to the, to Christians, he, he's, he tells the believers there to warn those who are idle or to warn those that are lazy. Well, it seems that some were, were still no, no longer working. And instead of, they were sponging off of members of the church. And while everyone else was working and serving, there were some who just refused to do so. And they were, they were causing problems for everyone else. And they were, and really, literally, the word that talks about being lazy or idle can also apply to being disruptive. And so that's why some translations have actually will translate it as idle and disruptive because it, it kind of could be either one. But in the context, we th- think it's probably more having to do with working. So, uh, and what was happening? Some were using the excuse of waiting for Christ's return. Saying, well, Jesus is going to return. We believe that. So why should I be working? Um, and they may have gotten real spiritual about it and say, well, Jesus is going to return. I can't waste my time working. I've got to be uh, about the business of, of telling people about Jesus. And so they were using that as, as an excuse. And, and then, and then in addition to that, if you understand a little bit about their culture, some may have just simply considered work too menial or too un- unspiritual. Uh, Jewish culture really uh, glorified, in a sense, and I, don't, I, don't, I wish I had a better word in my mind, that, but it glorified work. It really exonerated, not exonerated, lifted up, elevated work, the work ethic. And in fact, they had a saying, they, they said, he who does not teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. But in the Greek culture, on the other hand, the idea was that labor was degrading. So you can see, now the Thessalonians were living in Greek culture, so they had a very different view of, of labor and, and hard work, manual labor. Uh, to them, it was a menial occupation. It was fit for slaves only. It was not meant for free men. So they, uh, whatever the reason, they, they were uh, creating a problem in the church by expecting wealthier people or the people that were not necessarily wealthier, but people who were actually working, and they were, they were expecting the people in the church to support them. Uh, you know, I picture in my mind, you know, they, they had back in the early days of the church, they had these things called love feasts or agape feasts. And uh, it was somewhat tied into the idea of communion, but they would have these feasts. And, and uh, if, if you remember in James, it talks about some of these things and it talks about uh, that uh, some people would show up with lots of food and they didn't want to share it with people who didn't have. And James told them, hey, you need to share. You need to take care of your brothers. Well, I can picture in my mind, and this is just me using my imagination, something similar like that happening. But then these people showing up who don't work, don't bring anything and just want to eat the food that everybody else brings. And uh, or I could even see it maybe 
situation where there's this person that just always shows up at somebody's house at every night around dinner time and just expects to be fed. And so anyway, it's causing problems in the church. We know that. And, and Paul was firm that these believers were not honoring their faith in living this way. So I think we need to ask the question. We're going to talk a little bit about this. Why is work important? Why is work important? Well, in his letter to the Colossian church, Paul sets forth an, uh, really an all-encompassing pattern for how Christians should, should conduct their lives. He, he wrote this in Colossians chapter 3. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now that, that puts whatever you do, whatever you do for a living, whatever employment you have, that puts that in a completely different perspective. Because you're not working to make your boss happy. You're not working just so you can get a paycheck. You're not working to get through the day. You're working, according to Paul, at, <clears throat> for Jesus Christ. You're, the way you work is a reflection of how you're worshiping him in a real sense there. So because Christ's followers aim to please him in every part of life, they, they seek to live their lives and to do their work with passion and with excellence and reflecting, uh, and they want to reflect uh, Christ and their faith in a very positive way. So with that in mind, Christians should be, first of all, Christians must be guided by a different set of convictions about why they work and a different standard for how they do their work. And the Christian should be a more conscientious worker than anyone else. Work is the, the means by which humans acquire the necessities for life. You know, food, clothing, shelter, all these things. Work is the, the fundamental characteristic of human life because work provides the means for even sustaining life. I work to make sure my, my kids live, you know, that's basically the idea behind it. And, and in the biblical tradition, there, there's an unselfish aspect to work. Um, see, the, the human mindset, the world mindset is I work because I, I want to just take care of myself. I want to take care of my family, that sort of thing. But that's true, biblically speaking. But it's more to that because biblically speaking, when we talk about work, one also works for others. I work so that I can help those that are in need. That's a very big part of what you read a lot about that in Proverbs, for example. Um, and so although Paul pre previously taught the Thessalonians these things, some in the, in the church had failed to take his instruction to heart. They were, they were neglecting their responsibility to provide for themselves and to provide for their dependents. And they were adding to the burden of those who were working, those who were contributing to the needs of, 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 of those who are unable to do so. You know, so, it, I mean, I think you could understand this in a real modern sense that you have somebody who refuses to work but wants to come every day to the church's food pantry to get food to take home. And so what they're doing is they're adding to the burden of the church because then the church has to do something more to help those that are actually really in need. And so that's really what was happening. In other words, instead of working and contributing to the well-being of the congregation, they were refusing to work and thereby contributing instead to its burdens. In short, really, this is what it boils down to. Their behavior was fundamentally self-centered. 
And that's what's taking place. And as you read this, even a cursory reading of this passage reveals Paul's deep concern for how their, their poor work ethic was reflecting on the Lord and his church. He was concerned that the church was going to have a bad reputation for the, because of these people. And for Paul, Christianity was worthless unless it found its way into the fabric of life. And, and that's really all through the New Testament. In fact, that's really, in essence, you could say that's what James talked about. Uh, you know, a lot, some people like to say that Paul and James were at odds with each other, but they weren't. Uh, Paul was, his main thrust was expose, exposing the gospel and letting people understand that we are not saved by works. James does not disagree with that at all. James just simply says, if you are saved, it will lead to works. And that's the same thing that Paul taught. Ephesians 2.10 says, right after the Ephesians 2.8.9, where it says, we are saved by grace through faith, not, that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast, not of works, lest any man should boast. But right after that, in verse 10, he says, for we are created, we are, uh, we are God's workmanship, we are God's uh, masterpiece, this is really the essence of the word there, created to do good works. So even Paul was saying, you're not saved by work, your works, but you are saved to do something. That once you're saved, you'll do something. And so, um, and so uh, Paul makes it, you know, he's very strong in his teaching that you could claim to be a Christian, but that kind of Christianity is worthless if it doesn't show up in how you live your life. How the church lived said a lot about what the church actually believed. If we take God's word seriously, then we will take it to work with us. That is to say it in maybe a simpler way, how we do our work will reflect on the one that we claim to worship. So if that's true and we should have this strong work ethic, the question is, does this mean that a Christian should never take time off, but should just keep on working and, you know, because they want to be the most diligent person and they want to reflect uh, Christ and honor him? Well, no, that's not at all, because number one, we know that biblically that God at the very beginning of creation established a principle of a Sabbath, a day of rest. And so rest is important, there, but there is a difference between leisure and rest and laziness. There's a big difference between the two. Relaxation and recreation, and rest, all these things, they provide a necessary and much needed balance to our lives, especially, it's especially important for, to remember for those that are workaholics, because, uh, you know, you can have a great work ethic, but if you, if you put your work ahead of God and ahead of your spouse and ahead of your children, then you've got your priorities all, all out of whack. So it does bring balance in that area. But, but here's, I think, how you can boil it down into a nutshell. When it's time to work, work. You know, we, a Christian should, when it's time to work, a Christian should jump right in, making the most of their talent and their time, doing all they can to provide for themselves and their dependents. So work when you should be working and rest when you should be resting. That's, that's, how, that's how the Bible teaches us to live. Now, in contrast to how they were living, Paul points out his example uh, and, and how they had worked hard when they were in Thessalonica. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. He said, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. The literal translation there, he says, you, you should be trying to imitate me, which we don't see it, but that's actually mimicking uh, much of the language that he used in the first letter. 
But he says, uh, you yourselves know how you, sh you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. So in addition to teaching the gospel, they had, as he said, worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that they would not be a burden to any of the Thessalonians. And Paul and his companions, and he talks about this in the next verse, we need to understand that Paul and his companions, as the apostles, as the, lead, the ones who were bringing the gospel there, biblically speaking, they had the right to expect support for their ministry. The Bible talks about you don't muzzle the, the, the ox that treads the corn, the, 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 the grain. Uh, you, so they had a right. They, they, they had a right to be able to go into a church and say, well, listen, we're, we're doing this. We're bringing the gospel. And so we want you to, to, to pay for our expenses. They had a right to do that, biblically speaking. But they had chosen instead to work hard and to be a good example to the believers. Because, because the people who had brought the gospel to the Thessalonians had worked to not be a burden to anyone. His point is, if that's how we lived, that's how you should live. These, the, you, they should imitate his example. If, if those who were entitled to be supported by others chose rather to support themselves, then how much more should those who had no such entitlement earn their own living? Those who, those who, uh, uh, and, and I think there's something here that it's important to kind of point out because one of the things that brings to my mind when I read that is to understand that, that leadership, when you're in leadership, uh, that you have to live a life that's an example. And that's what the principle Paul was putting in place here. And those who share the gospel with others must not only speak the message, but they, but we have to live it as well. And I think that's common sense for most of us, because if somebody gets up and they preach the gospel and then they go out and live, you know, a, a, a horrible, sinful life, obviously then the, the message to everybody in the world is this gospel means nothing. It doesn't change anything. You don't have to, you don't have to, to listen to this, but the new Testament places very strong emphasis on Im imitating leaders. Paul, in multiple places, says, follow me, for example. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. He says, imitate me, live the way I lived. He says that sort of thing all the, all the time. Now, interesting thing is, though, is most other places he talks about attitudes and, uh, and, and, and those sort of things in, in a life, uh, thought patterns, whatever. Here, though, he specifically applies it to a pattern of living. Um, you know, when it comes to this idea, though, of, of, an, of uh, patterns, of examples, uh, I think, you know, as a Christian, I, I guarantee everybody in this room has somebody that if you thought about it, you could go back and you say, you know what, I owe a lot to that person because I learned a lot about following Christ by watching their example. Every one of us has, has somebody in our life like that, and they, they modeled Christian living for you. They didn't just talk to you about it. They just didn't tell you about it, but you learned by watching them now, as much as you could. Maybe, maybe you didn't see every part of their life, but you learned a lot of what, about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus by watching their example. 
And, and I, want to, I just want to say to you, first of all, remember this. Somebody else is watching your life. You say, oh, no, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not that great spiritual leader like somebody else has. I'm here to tell you, every person here, you're an example to somebody. You're, you're, somebody is watching your, your life. Um, now, you know, that doesn't mean that dozens of people are, but somebody is. You know, we talk about leadership. You are a leader in one way or another because leadership in his essence is influence and you have influence in somebody's life. And so you're, you're an example in your life one way or another of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So I urge you to learn from the examples of those who went before you who were great men and women of God and, and continue to live that out and be good examples for those that, that are now watching you. And as those people in, in the past invested in your life, I, I urge you to take time and make sure you invest in the lives of other people around you. Um, you, you need to make sure you're striving with the help of the Holy Spirit to become a model worth emulating. So now, not only had Paul and Silas and, and Timothy been an example of Christian living to the Thessalonians, but we, we know that they had also explained clearly what was expected of these believers. The, the, the command regarding laziness had been given right from the start. In fact, the, the language that he uses in the passage there where he says, we've told you from the beginning uh, that if a man will not work, he shall not eat. The, the language that's used there implies that this was said many, many times. So this is something that while Paul was there, he was teaching them. Again, maybe it's going back to the Greek idea of work in their culture of being, you know, something to look down that maybe that's part of why he had to address it so much. But from the very beginning, over and over and over again, this is what the language implies that is that they've heard this. How many of you ever have a saying that you've said a lot? And as soon as you start it, your, you know, your, your kids know exactly what you're going to say and they finish it before you're done. Right. Uh, like like with my kids, uh, my daughters both tell you. All you have to do is, is is they just hear me start to say something like, uh, "Play now." They could finish it. Play now, pay later, or pay now, play later. And so you know they know that, and I think it's kind of one of those things where Paul has said this so much that they they know exactly what he's saying because he, he said so many times, "If a man will not work, they shall not eat." And the the Greek literally reads here, "Don't let them eat." That's literally what he says. And in, in, the, in the context here where he's writing to these people where some are sponging off of others, I think he, an even more robust translation might read, it might say something more like, stop feeding them. And again, I get to this picture of them coming to the house at dinner time and showing up and expecting to be fed. And, and, and Paul's saying, tell them, oh, it's good to see you and close the door. Stop feeding them. You know, we, we would use language nowadays with our modern way of looking at things. We'd say, stop enabling them. That's the kind of language we would use. And, and, and the important thing in this whole situation that Paul is talking about, it's, it's the refusal to work that is important. Those who refuse to work when they're able, when, when there is work to be done, should not be given food so that they can eat it. If they can earn, earn money for their food, then they should do so without depending on others to care for them. And that's a really important for us to get that. 
because we need to be careful that, that we don't use this verse on those who are willing but unable to work. Because there, and, and there's different reasons for that. Sometimes a person's unable to work because they can't physically do it anymore. Sometimes an, a person's unable to work because maybe they only have a limited skill set and they just, there just aren't any jobs available for them at that moment. You know, especially you look at the way the economy is and the way things go. And sometimes they're, you know, especially if somebody's in a small town or something, there are times when they're willing to work, but they just, and they're able to work, but they aren't able to get a, a, a job for whatever reason. Now, again, if they're not willing to, to look for a job, that falls under the category of, of not willing to work. But but it's it's really easy for us to sort of glibly dismiss the difficult conditions of those that are that that either with a disability or maybe a lack of job availability. But I want you to understand this has nothing to do with the unfortunate man who through no fault of his own can find no work to do or the person who simply cannot physically do that work. Uh, so th this is not applying to them. Th this is about people. And listen, <laughs> if we've ever lived in a time when there's plenty of people who can work but won't work, it's in today's culture. Uh, and so there are a lot of people that think that they're entitled to have, you know, food put on their table just because they exist. But, uh, but the truth is, what the Bible teaches is, if a person is, willing to, is unwilling to work, they're unwilling to, to even try to work, then, then that person should not be fed. And, and listen, I know it's, you know, I, I take a lot of flack by, from some people on something like this, but I'll tell you right now, that would solve a lot of issues with our, our economy and our, with the, the culture of entitlement, because all of a sudden, if somebody doesn't have somebody giving them food, they're, they're going to find a job to try to buy some food. So, you know, that, that is what it is. Uh, and so Paul's harsh words are for the people who are unwilling to work when they have both the ability and the opportunity to work. So now Paul, up to this point in time in this passage, he's been talking to the church at large. He's saying, I hear this is what's going on in your midst, which, by the way, it's very interesting to me because as Paul writes these things, as he says, uh, you know, if a, if, if a person's unwilling to work, he should not eat. It, think about this. He, the people, you know, what they would do, he would, they'd get the letter and they would read the letter to the church. Well, guess what? Those lazy people that are not willing to work are sitting there listening to this too. You imagine what's going through their mind? Oh, if he will not work, he shall not eat. Stop feeding them. Can you imagine them, the, the impact that it might have had on them? Well, now he actually does turn directly to them. And he, he, he gives a command to those that are idle. Verse, verse 11, we read it. Let's read it again. We hear that some of you, uh, uh, some among you are idle. They are not busy. They are busy bodies. NIV does a really good job of catching the wordplay there that he uses. Verse uh, 12, such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread they eat. Now, we're going to talk about why he tells them to settle down because, well, Actually, it just says it right there. He said they're, they're not busy, meaning they're not working and keeping themselves busy, but they are busy bodies. They're in everybody else's business. And this is where he says, you got to settle down. You got you to quit doing that kind of stuff 
and, and get get to work in this and, and earn the bread that you eat. So, but, but what we see here, we know that Paul was not the only one concerned with this issue. Apparently, the believers in Thessalonica had felt that this was so important that they had notified Paul because he said, we hear. Now, we don't know. Uh, we don't know who told Paul this was going on. But this is after Timothy had returned to Paul. So it's very likely that the church had sent some messenger to Paul to say, hey, go, go talk to him. Tell him what's going on. We don't know what to do here. Uh, maybe they had taken Paul's advice and they had, as it said in the first letter, they had warned the idle believers. They had told them, hey, we're warning you, you need to, you need to work. Uh, but, but they had seen no results and there had been no change. And now they're like, now what do we do? We've warned them. They're not listening to us. So Paul, we want you to deal with them directly. What do we do? And so these people, not being busy, had become busy bodies. And they were, these people are not only refusing to work, but they were meddling in the affairs of others, if not the whole church, you know. And uh, so instead of working, instead of minding their own business, they were minding other people's business. They, they were prying into the private lives of, of other people. They were interfering with their progress and, and their, their lack of constructive activity was leading them actually into sin. And as a result, they had become a burden to the church. They, they were wasting time and resources that could have been used for helping other people that were really, that were really in need. So Paul sternly commanded them, settle down. You got to quit this and earn the bread you eat. So apparently these busybodies were meddling in other people's business. And get this. And then they were eating those people's bread, their, their food. So somebody comes to your house and starts meddling in your business, telling you who, how you ought to be living and what you ought to be doing and what you're doing wrong. And, and you ought to do this, you ought to do that. And they said, oh, by the way, uh, you got something to eat. And the, and the people were feeding them. But Paul did not mince any words with, with these idle people. He said they were, they were all responsible to work hard and in order to earn the food that they were eating. So then he addresses them. Then he turns to the rest of the people in verse 13. And as for you, brothers, never tire of doing what is right. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of it. Do not associate with him in order that he may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now we're going to, this is an interesting passage. There's a lot of things going on there that's a little harder for us to understand with our Western mindset. Uh, but let's kind of just dive into it. Hardworking believers should not let idlers cause them to become dispirited, discouraged in their work. That's the first thing he says. He says, don't ever tire, tire of doing what is right. Now, that may be, that may be an encouragement. Maybe it's all of these. Maybe it was an encouragement to them to say, hey, we know that you're trying to do the right thing and these other people keep, uh, you know, uh, absorbing the resources and all the effort that you put in. And so it, you, it's just hard to keep motivated because you're not really, it's not really going to where it ought to be going. Or, or it might be that, uh, you know, that it's, it's hard to keep going when you're, you're doing the right thing and you're warning them and they don't listen. But, but regardless of what, whatever, whatever it means, Paul wrote almost the same thing to the Galatians in Galatians 6, 9. This is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Paul wrote, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time 
we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I love that passage because to me, when I, when I read that, this is not part of what we're talking about tonight, but when I read that is, uh, my interpretation is, if we don't give up, we can't lose. He said, at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Well, Paul knew that the believers could become discouraged when they tried to do what was right, and then they received no word of thanks, or they saw no tangible results. Has has anybody ever been there in your life where you're trying to touch somebody, you're trying to help somebody, you're praying for somebody, you're talking to them, and no matter what you do, how much you pour into them, you don't see any change, you see no tangible results. Have you ever been there? It's a very frustrating thing. It really does zap your spirit. It makes you wonder, you know, should I even keep trying? I read a, a, a little story by... Uh, commentator, his name is Gary Demarest, but he was writing about this idea, and and this is what he wrote. I just want to read it to you. He said, I'll never forget the day I spent in a large, sprawling hospital in Soroti, Uganda. I visited two men who had been shot and beaten by bandits the night before. I talked with middle-aged people who were dying of, of causes treated routinely in our hospitals. I visited a heavily populated measles ward and witnessed the deaths of three children that morning. He says, as I walked across the grounds with a Ugandan nurse, a committed Christian, I asked her, don't you ever get discouraged? The situation is so beyond hope. Don't you just want to give up? He said, tears streamed down her cheeks. She said, yes, every day I want to give up. But I'd rather do what little I can than do nothing. Wow. You know, when we see the need around us, I don't know about you, but it's so easy to get overwhelmed. It's easy to think, what, what good can I do? There's just, it seems at times that there's just no hope. But we must do what little we can rather than to do nothing. Paul challenged all believers just to keep on doing good, to trust God with the results, because we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. At the same time that the believers were were to not get weary of doing good, they also were not to put up with fellow believers who were being disobedient to Paul's commands regarding laziness. It's interesting here because what Paul does next in this letter, he takes a step further in his command regarding these people than he did in the first letter. Because in the first letter, what did he tell them? He said, warn those who are idle, warn those who are lazy. But no longer are believers told to merely warn the lazy people because apparently the people had not heeded the warnings. So Paul told the believers, keep away from them. Now, this refers not to excommunication from the church, but really it refers to withdrawing intimate fellowship from them. By refusing to associate with these people, the Christians were rebuking them, hoping to get them to change their conduct. Basically, what Paul was saying was cut their, cut off their support and do it publicly. The, the, these lazy people were refusing to work And they were meddling in other people's businesses. And in the spirit of love, the best way to deal with these meddlers was just to not talk to them. Don't give them anything in which to meddle. 
is what he's in essence saying. When they find themselves with nothing to do and no hearing for their meddling, then they'll hopefully find a more constructive use for their time. So um, Paul repeated then his direction regarding this issue. He said, take, take special note of them. He said, and he said, do not associate with them. Now, when he talks about take special note of them, what he's really saying, Paul is telling the church to call out these people and to do so publicly. Now, you need to understand, this is something is, is very difficult to do in today's modern church, and that's because we have options. In, in most churches in America, if a church tries to do uh, church discipline the way it's supposed to be done, and it gets to the point where they ha- it has to be dr- addressed publicly, which by that time, there's a lot of things that have gone, under the, uh, gone on behind the scenes. And if you do that, then what typically happens is the person doesn't respond to that. They just take off and go to another church. But you know what? There was no other church in Thessalonica. That made this a very, a very uh, uh, effective thing. And the hope was that the idle, lazy, lazy people would then become ashamed of their actions and they would change their ways. Now, I want to talk a little bit about that because modern readers, those of us with a Western mindset, um, we, we associate the notion of shame with things like just simple embarrassment. But, but we need to understand that they lived in what was called, and much of the world also still lives in, was a, an honor, shame uh, culture. We don't, the West has never functioned that way. We function more as a guilt and innocence culture. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, maybe fill that in a little bit more. But uh, in the first century uh, Mediterranean world, honor and shame were part of a social mechanism used to maintain order. Honor was the public acknowledgement of someone that they belonged to a particular society or a group in society. And then shame was the public acknowledgement of someone that uh, that they belonged to a particular, excuse me, that, that that person had stepped out of that group's accepted norms. So, and as a form of social control, it helped the group uphold its values and punish those who did not. Uh, let, me, let me try to explain it like this. With a guilt and innocence culture, which is what most of us grew up in, uh, then the idea is that if somebody breaks the law or they, or they uh, break some more sh- social moray or something like that, then what happened is that they did something wrong and they're no longer innocent. They are guilty. Therefore, they can do something to correct it. But with honor, shame culture, it's very different because when you break the law or you break some social moray, instead, you didn't, you didn't do something and, and, and therefore, you know, uh, it wasn't that you did something wrong. It's that you became someone wrong. So when you talk about shame here, this is the idea behind it. And this is how much of the world, this is why Westerners have a really hard time understanding the thought process of, of much of the, of the Eastern world today. Uh, I, I was re- listening to some, uh, uh, a sermon uh, recently about a, a man, he's talking about how he would do evangelism in the Muslim world. And Muslims live in the honor-shame culture. And so he would be talking with them. And when they were talking about truth, this person would agree with them over and over and over again. But then he would always try to change the subject instead of dealing with those and start changing, uh, start talking about family issues. And why is that? It's because it's because it wasn't about truth. It was about 
the honor or shame that he would feel from his family. And so that honor and that shame becomes, let me put it like this, with guilt and innocence, what we, what we expect is we avoid doing the wrong thing because we don't want to feel guilty. Um, or if we, if we do feel guilty, it causes us to do something right to make it right. So the mechanism to keep us from doing the wrong thing is something that happens within us. With honor-shame culture, the mechanism is the relationships outside of you that controls what you do. And this is why it takes many Muslims a long time to, to make that decision to follow Christ because it takes them a long time to break for, through that control that that honor-shame culture has on them. But uh, from, from early childhood, people uh, were, were taught to seek honor and to avoid shame. And Paul's desire to, to make these people feel ashamed is not simply about making them feel bad. That's how we think of shame. We think, oh, I feel bad about it. But what really it is, it's an attempt to exclude them from the community and to do so publicly. It's about this honor-shame culture that says, listen, we want them to wake up to this. And so this is the culture in which you live. So you, you use the relationships that you have to help them wake up. And by not associating with them, the Thessalonian believers are making a public statement that these people no longer conform to the community's values and therefore are not part of the community uh, uh, any longer. And the potential impact on those who were shunned, so to speak, was, was great. Because think about this. You know, I mentioned earlier, when, when you do this with somebody today, they just go to another church. But some of these same people that he's talking about have already lost honor by becoming Christians. Their family has already disowned them. They already, they're, they're, they, they've already become the target of intense persecution from their fellow citizens. They've lost all that honor in that side of it. And, and unlike our modern world where we can move to a new job or to a new, new city or maybe even a new church, these people just had few options. They were already excluded from one group and the one that they're now part of is about to exclude them as well. So you can see how this could be a shock to the system and say, wait a minute, I'm not going to have any place to belong anymore. One commentator wrote like this, said it like this. He said, discipline is a shock treatment designed to provoke those who are rebellious to return to the Lord. That's the whole idea of what Paul is trying to do here. And in this case, in this case, we're not dealing with a situation or a sin that requires the offending person to be, quote, struck from the rolls and considered to be no longer believers. Uh, fellowship is not bring, being broken off completely, but it is being curtailed. And, and in fact, Paul still clearly considers them to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and, and Paul counseled the church to stop supporting fin them financially and to stop associating with those who persisted in their idleness. Because this was not just an act that they were doing. The way Paul writes this, he's saying they're, they're living a lifestyle of this. And he says, if they're going to persist in that lifestyle, you cannot, you cannot assist them in that. You cannot let them be part of that because that does not honor Christ. So Paul, was, he was not advising coldness or cruelty for those who were not, uh, for the people because they were not enemies. He's, he's not calling for separation and humiliation of the person to destroy the person. His goal is the unity and stability of the church. That's his goal in this. And the, the act of making them feel ashamed 
will hopefully lead them to repentance. And with repentance, then comes reinstatement. They were misguided. They were mistaken. But they were not to be thrown out of the church. They did, however, need a good, hearty dose of tough love. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, when we talk about church discipline, we actually talked about this in in a Sunday message recently. But I want to just give you some guidelines for church discipline. The first thing that we see, and this is one of the things Paul brings out here, is that discipline is the responsibility, responsibility of the congregation as a whole, not just one or a few individuals within it. The, the members don't sit around and, and watch their leadership discipline those who are disrupting the peace of the community. Now, the leadership may lead this process, but if, for example, if the Thessalonian church did what Paul said, if the people in the church didn't participate in it, it was no good. You know, if the leaders said, all right, Paul said we should not associate with them. We're not going to help them anymore. Don't feed them anymore uh, because this is what we need to do. We want them to wake up and realize that they're dishonoring Christ the way they're living. If, if, the, if the leader of the church said that, but then everybody in the church said, all right, we hear you, pastor. We hear you, Deacon Joe, whatever it was. And then they just kept doing it. It's useless. So it shows us that it's not just one or two people doing that. The whole church has to participate in this. Uh, Believers, we learn from this, have an obligation to hold one another accountable for their actions and to deal accordingly with those who reject biblical instruction. Now, I'll say that with with a little bit of a caveat, because we talked about this before. I... I can't hold you accountable. You have to make yourself accountable. Remember, we've talked about this before. The reason is because, for example, if somebody comes to me and they say, hey, brother, I, I, just, I just need an accountability partner. I'm, I'm struggling with pornography. I need to be accountable. Okay. So then every time I see them, I can say, hey, brother, how are you doing? Have you looked at anything you shouldn't have been looking at? How are you dealing with this? Now's, now's where they have to make themselves accountable because if they have, they can still lie to me. And I haven't held them accountable. I tried to, to help them be accountable. But the only way anybody's accountable is if they're honest in their reply. So that means I have to make myself accountable. Nobody can hold me accountable uh, in in peer relationships, so to speak. And so I, I say that, but, but in the sense of this, when we're talking about biblical accountability, the church in this sort of thing, church discipline, we have to understand that, uh, that it's everybody has a responsibility for one another. You go back to the Garden of Eden, uh, not the Garden, but Genesis, after Cain killed Abel and God said, Cain, where's your brother? Which by the way, I've said this before, every time you read a question, when God asks a question in Scripture, He's not asking it because He needs the information. He doesn't need the answer. He already knows the answer. He's trying to get you to see something or to admit something or to confess something. When He saw, when He came to the garden after Adam and Eve sinned, and He said, Adam, where are you? He, he knew who, where Adam was. God knows everything. He asked him the question because He wanted Adam to see where he was and what he was, what was really going on. When he asked Cain, Cain, where's your brother? 
He didn't ask him because he needed to know where Abel was. He already knew. In fact, we know that because, because just a few words later, God says to him, he says, his blood cries to me from this, from the earth. I already know what you've done. I wanted you to admit it. And so, uh, I forget where it's going now with this, but it was a really good point. But, uh, uh, but, uh, you know, in, anyway, it, it's, uh, well, I really lost my train of thought there. Well, I know, but I, I know that I was talking about accountability, but I don't remember how I was tying that into that. So anyway, somebody needed to hear that, I guess. That's we'll just say that. But uh, now later I'll be watching the video and say, oh, I know what I was going to say. So I'll just send you a text or something at three in the morning. So um, anyway, uh, th- those whose lives reflect habitual and willful disregard for God's word must be made aware of the serious implications of their disobedience. And it's our responsibility, uh, because we're family, to do that. The, The purpose of disciplinary action, here's the principle number two, is always redemptive. It's always the goal of redeeming the person. It's not judgmental. It's not punitive. It's not designed to punish somebody. Uh, and, and so understanding that, that means the spirit in which it is carried out must reflect that. That, that uh, remembering that the, that the erring brother or sister is not an enemy of the church, they're not my enemy, they're my brother or, or sister for whom Christ died. And the third thing, and what related to that, the goal of disciplinary, disciplinary action is restoration to full fellowship, not the removal from it. So Paul, by saying, hey, don't associate with them, in a way, he's removing them from the group, but the goal is not to keep them and to kick them out completely. The goal is to say, help them realize what they're missing out on and, and what, what's going on here to wake them up so that they will come back into full fellowship. Um, and w- when Christian discipline is necessary, we have to remember it must be given as a brother, as brother to brother or sister to sister. It's not in anger or contempt, but always in love. Always in love. And the truth is, to do this is love. Because the the, the cruelest thing that we can do to a sinning brother or sister is to refuse to warn them. Is to just say, fine, let them go. And refuse to warn them of the consequences of traveling down a road that will ultimately lead to their ruin and their destruction. Let's look at Paul's final greeting. Uh, Verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times and in every way. The Lord be with you all. Which, by the way, I'll just say this. There is a chance, uh, and I'm probably getting ahead of myself a little bit, when Paul wrote these letters, typically he would be speaking and a secretary, it was actually called an amanuensis, I believe is what it's called, but it was somebody else who would be writing it out as he was speaking. So this last, that line there, the Lord be with you all, could very well be the last line that the secretary wrote, wrote because of what Paul says next. And he may have taken over writing this next part because he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. 
So there's a, there's a good chance that there's a break there that Paul said, okay, move aside, fellow. It maybe was Timothy, because Timothy likely wrote a lot of these out for him. He may have said, okay, okay Timothy, I, I need to sign it out with my own hand here. They'll see, so they can see that it's literally really from me. Because we know that there were false letters uh, written by false apostles and false teachers that were circulating to the churches. This was could very well be, it was, it was a common practice. <coughs> Woo! You awake now? I felt that coming at the last second. There was nothing I could do. I apologize. <laughs> I should have hit the mute button, but I just didn't have time. It was a common practice for the author to do that. I'm trying to, I'm, in my mind, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to edit that when it comes time to upload the video. <laughs> everybody, everybody at home, I just blew out like, like a dozen sp- TV speakers is what I just happened there. <laughs> I'm, I'm having a hard time moving past that here. So, so Paul, likely, in order to uh, assure the people that this truly was a letter from him, then he had the, the a common practice of then signing it himself in some way. And so that's, that's what was taking place here. So Paul, just as Paul began his letter with grace and peace, so he ended it. He prayed for the grace of God to be evident as, as they carried out his commands. He knew that the commands... Uh, that he had given would be more uh, would take more than human effort alone. He knew it would be difficult for the idle b- uh, person to humbly go back to work, for that person to humble themselves and say, I was wrong and start working again. It was going to be a hard choice for them. It was going to be a, a, a tough transition for them. But he also knew it was going to be difficult for the annoyed believers. Anybody here? I know you're, you're, some of, you're all perfect. But anybody here ever get annoyed with another believer? Okay, all right, so we're all human. So he knew it was going to be difficult for those annoyed believers to treat those people with a firm hand and yet do so lovingly. Because some of them, I mean, listen, I think they're human just like you and me. I think some of them were like, have nothing to do with him. Yeah, buddy. You know, that they were like ready to get him. And so Paul knew, hey, you know, they, they need the grace of God because they need to be able to remember the grace that God gave to them so they can show some grace to the people around. He, he prayed for peace. And, and we know that the peace of God does not mean the absence of conflict. Uh, because they had peace, but they certainly were in constant conflict with the amount of suffering that they had and the persecution. Uh, but but the, the peace that God gives is, is confident assurance in, in the midst of any circumstance with no fear of the present or the future. As we've said before, peace is not the absence of conflict. Peace is the presence of God. And because God's peace is impossible without God's presence, Paul adds these words to his prayer. The Lord be with you all. In... Uh, The closing verses of the letter, Paul ends the letter as it began, and that is with the spotlight, the focus, the emphasis squarely on Jesus Christ. In the course of the letter, he has talked a fair amount uh, about the Thessalonians, about their problems. He talked quite a bit about the evil men of lawlessness and all the things that were going to take place during the end times. But in the end, the last word is about Jesus. 
He's the one who loved us. He's the one from whom we receive grace and peace. He is the one who is faithful and will strengthen and protect us from the evil one. He's the one who will overthrow and destroy the lawlessness, lawless one when, uh, when uh, he comes to deliver his people. He's the one who does all of it. And in short, what he's saying is to close this up is to remind us that our future rests entirely on the power and the faithfulness of God as revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, that is good news. If, if knowing who he is, if my future rests on him, I'm in a pretty good place. That's good news. Amen. Would you bow your head? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything you've, you've taught us, all the things you've said through First and Second Thessalonians. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to to not just hear your word and walk out and say, well, I've got some more knowledge. I can talk to people about guilt and innocence culture now. I can talk about honor and shame culture. But God, I pray more than that, that we would take what you've said, not just tonight, but all, all through these 18 weeks, and you would use it to just continue to shape us, to mold us, to make us who you want us to be. And God, I pray that we would work hard, not just at our jobs, but in everything we do, that all we do, Lord God, would be done to glorify your name, that we'd be doing it for you because we work for our Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us. Make us the people you want us to be. We give you praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.